Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for um, your sovereignty. And thank you so much for Jesus Christ. And uh, Lord, I, I thank you for these guys uh, that sh they show up every week and they come ready to learn, ready to wrestle with the scriptures. Sometimes, Father, we don't always agree and that's okay. Um, but we're learning, we're growing, and we're uh, stretching ourselves in such a way that we grow in our knowledge of Christ, grow up in our salvation, and Father, become the men that you want us to be. Uh, show up this morning, Father, in power and might, and uh, use your word to change our lives. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. amen. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And we're going to do... Um, Three chapters again, and uh, last week was, uh, I remember I used the analogy that we're jumping in the deep end of the pool, and uh, some of us sank, uh, some of us just barely kept our noses above the water. This week, we're kind of moving into, okay, now we got to swim, we got to learn how to swim, and in, in the book of Romans, um, we've seen that it's, it's the gospel of God, and, and I don't want you to lose that, that all throughout the book of Romans, it's about the gospel. It's Paul defending, defining, talking about the gospel of God. And so he starts out early on uh, that everybody is condemned, everybody is a sinner, everybody is in the same boat, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, dumb, smart, everybody's in the same boat. And then he spends time talking about God's grace, God's mercy, that God came up with a plan we saw last week that God is sovereign, but man is also responsible. Um, and this week, we move into um, three particular chapters. It really goes into chapter 15, uh, 12, 13, 14, and 15, all really deal with now what? Um, if based on everything we've looked at so far, all the way up through chapter 11, these chapters are the now what? So what do we do now? And it's all about sanctification. It's the practical part of the gospel. If, if we are in Christ, if we have accepted Christ, if we have uh, received this incredible gift that God has provided to us, for us, what do we do with it? What's our response to it? And so that's what this morning is going to be about. It's about sanctification. How do we grow in Christ? And so I want to Start out by looking, of course, at chapter 12, but we're going to go back a little bit and look at the end of chapter 11 again. He says this in chapter 12. You're very familiar with this passage. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We're to present our bodies, um, and it's interesting that that's a, it's a plural, and he's talking about not just your body and me, my body, but our bodies as a group, as a context, as believers, as the body of Christ, we're to present ourselves to God as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so the first thing I want to talk about this morning is, is that what we're talking about, sanctification is really the worship of God spelled out. How do you worship God? Now, when I hear the word worship, I think of worship. I think of that sanctuary, Sunday morning, at a particular time that I go to with my wife and we worship. But if you're like me, there are plenty of Sundays where I go to that sanctuary with my wife, sit through an hour-long thing, and don't worship. 
I just sat through a service. I heard a message, maybe sang some songs, but I didn't necessarily worship. So Paul's going to say that worship is not something necessarily that takes place in that kind of a context. That is worship, should be worship, could be worship, but worship is much broader in Paul's context. So sanctification, growing in Christ's likeness is worship. And he's going to spell that out for us in these verses. Then he's going to say, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This is in chapter 9, or I mean chapter 13. So not only is sanctification a form of worship, but he sits here and he talks about the law. And he goes back to the law of Moses. And he's going to flesh out the law. The law is part of our sanctification. God didn't get rid of the law. God didn't dismantle the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So we don't have to keep the law in order to be saved, but we don't also ignore the law and say, well, it doesn't apply to me anymore. Because the law is what? It's holy and righteous and good. And so the law, the moral law specifically, not the ceremonial laws, but the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is still something we should try to live out in our everyday life. Why? Because it brings glory and honor to God. It's the will of God not to lie, not to steal, not to covet, not to lust. And so we're going to see him flesh out the law in our lives as we seek to grow in Christ's likeness. And then in chapter 14, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so he's going to talk about the kingdom of God. And, and again, growing in Christ's likeness doesn't take place outside of the context of the kingdom of God. We are in the kingdom of God. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. So he's going to show you that sanctification, growing in Christ's likeness, increasing in holiness is part of being in this kingdom. And if it's not happening, there's something wrong. And so these three chapters are going to be highly practical for you and I. How do we do this? How do we live out this thing called the Christian life? And so hopefully you're going to get something out of this this morning that will help you today, tomorrow, next week, and the rest of your life. So in Romans 6, 4, he talked about newness of life. We should walk in newness of life. And now he's going to tell us, okay, so what does that look like? How do you do that? How is it a form of worship? How is it a keeping of the law when you do that? And how, is it, how does it reflect that you are now part of this kingdom, this different kingdom? Because remember, we have been saved and we have been placed in the kingdom of God. We're no longer citizens of this kingdom. So how do we live like we belong to a different kingdom while we still live in this earth? And that's the challenge every one of us face as we walk this planet is that we're believers. We even, we're basically, he says, we're already in heaven because he's reserved a place for us. We're heirs, we're sons, but yet we're still here. But we, we need to live like where we belong. And so that's really what we're going to talk about this morning. But I want to look at this. Go back to chapter 12, verse 1. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. But he says, how, how are we to do that? What's the basis of that? He says, by the mercies of God. So we're to present ourselves, our bodies, these fleshly bodies, even though they have a sin nature and they fight against us all the time, we're to take these bodies and sacrifice them, give them over to God 
as holy and acceptable, pleasing to God. But based on what? Based on the mercies of God. And so if you think about it, what he's done in really 1 through 11 is he's gone over and over again, the mercy of God, that in spite of the sins of man, in spite of the rebellion of man, God keeps showing mercy. He's been for, forbearing, he's been kind, he's been patient, and he's shown us mercy. So what is the basis of the spelled out, fleshed out, lived out faith that you and I enjoy? Because that's really what he's kind of trying to get you to understand is that if you're going to live a certain way, what's the basis? And it's the mercies of God. So if you're going to live as a Christian, you've got to constantly go back to what has he done for me? But you know what I tend to do is what have you not done for me yet? What's missing in my life that I think I need? And I don't look back and think, good grief, look at what you've already done for me. I was a sinner. I was condemned. I was headed to hell. I was headed to eternal separation from you. Couldn't do a thing about it. And yet you showed me mercy and you have made me your son, your heir. And you've got a place reserved for me for eternity. And I never have to worry about hell again. I never have to doubt my salvation again. That's an incredible mercy. But if you don't think about it, what you'll tend to do is think about all the things you don't have yet, all the things he hasn't done for you yet. And so the key to this, the key to offering yourself as a living sacrifice is never forgetting the mercies of God, what he has done for you. Romans 8.30 says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He gives you this picture. This is almost a synopsis of the mercies. God has done all all of this for you and I, all the way to glorification. We know we're going to heaven. We know he's got a place reserved for us. He's, he's saved us and he's going to glorify us and he's going to take care of us in the meantime, in between as we live on this earth. And so we got to keep going back to his incredible mercy. And so again, I want to go back to the end of what we looked at last week at the end of chapter 11. He says, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. We owe everything to God. Our breath, our life, everything we have, we owe to God. But most specifically, we owe our salvation to God. He has made it possible because we had no hope without him. So to him be glory forever. Amen. We have to keep that in mind. It's by the mercies of God according to the mercies of God, that we're able to and should be willing to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. So all that we have is from God and all that we do should be for God. All that we do should be for him. And I, and I know that's hard. That's, that's kind of a, what does that look like? Well, that means everything I do, I should do with him in mind that it's, it's for his glory. It's for um, it's a way of saying thanks to him for all that he's done. So whether it's I'm mowing my yard, whether it's I'm meeting with one of my kids and talking about difficult things, whether it's I'm doing my work, whatever it is, spending time with my wife, if I'm in a small group, I'm doing it for him because he's made it all possible. It's keeping everything in perspective because what happens in my life and in your life, it becomes all about who? You. I do everything for me. And I get real selfish sometimes about what, what's in it for me. Why would I do that? Why would I bother? What am I going to get out of that? But if I'm doing it for him, that begins to diminish. 
So that's why it's so important for us to understand that we got to keep going back to. Remember I said, keep your head on a swivel, looking forward to what you have coming, looking backward for what he's already done, and that will help you live the life you're living right here. But if all you do is focus on this, this life here and now, you will always be disappointed because you'll never have enough. It'll never be good enough. You'll never be successful enough. Your kids will never behave enough. Your wife will never be enough. It, it, it will always be disappointing if you don't remember what he's done and what he's going to do. And that's really what these verses are all about. So again, present your bodies, a living sacrifice. He says living, not dead, because right, we're alive. And it's a picture of literally, it's almost a picture of uh, um, Abraham taking Isaac, Isaac and sticking him up on that altar, fully breathing, fully alive but we remain alive. We're to, he's not asking us to give our lives and to die. He's saying, live your life for me. Every day of your life, it's a living sacrifice. It's to be a holy sacrifice. And that simply means it's set apart for him. Everything you do, you got to keep in mind that you belong to him and you have been set apart by him for him. You don't exist for you. You exist for him. And then finally, it's acceptable or pleasing. So alive to Christ. Remember, we're dead to sin, alive to Christ. We're a living sacrifice. We've been set apart. Therefore, we are holy. We belong to him. And then we should be pleasing to God. And that last one's kind of interesting because if you think about what you do with your life and your day and the decisions you make, it, is it pleasing to God? Is it something that God would be pleased with? And the problem is you've got to stop long enough to think through what the answer to that is. But we're, we're pretty impulsive as guys. We're, you know, we just make snap decisions. We move, we go, we, you know, this is what I want, this is what I want to do. And we never stop and think, is this really what God would have me do? And why don't we want to ask that question? Because we're afraid he'll say, no, that's not what I want you to do. And it's just easier to, what's the, what's the phrase? Um, ask forgiveness rather than ask permission. Just, Lord, I, I shouldn't have done that, but boy, it was fun. And I, I know you don't approve of it, but forgive me. No, ask him. Let him direct your way. Be a living sacrifice. He says, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, and he's talking to the church. Don't, don't lose sight of this. Too often when we read the letters of Paul specifically, uh, we take the letters and we make them like they're personal letters written to us as individuals. You can do that to a degree, but we lose sight of the bigger picture that he was always writing to the, to the local church, to the community. So don't remove yourself out of the community, the body context. He says, I'm speaking to you, the church, to those among you. I'm writing to the church, to the global body, not to just individuals. He says, don't think more highly of yourselves than you should, but with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned him. And he moves right into, in this chapter, how are you and I to live within the body of Christ? And the truth is, we probably have more trouble living in the body of Christ than we do living in the world. And we probably have more friends who are not in Christ than we have friends that are in Christ. Or we have friends who are in Christ who live like they're not in Christ. But how do we live within this thing called the body of Christ? What does it look like? Do we just show up on Sundays and sit in the pew next to somebody, show up on Thursday, sit at the table with some guys and never talk to them again throughout the rest of the week? What should this look like? And so he says, don't think too highly of yourselves. Don't be arrogant. Don't think you're better. Don't think you're more spiritual. He says, no, 
Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. What does that mean? What's the measure of faith? Does that mean some of us have more faith than others? No. It's basically saying that we have a standard for our faith. What is that standard? It's our common belief in Christ. See, I, I believe in Christ. You believe in Christ. I was saved by the mercies of God. You were saved by the mercies of God. Your wealth or your intelligence had no bearing in it, neither did mine or my lack of both. We all stand on common ground. So he says, the measure of your faith is that we're basically, we all share the same faith. We all share a same belief in the same Savior, and it, it levels the ground. So never think of yourself as more highly, more spiritual, more deserving of any, than anybody else within the church. And isn't that easy to do? Isn't it easy to look at people and just judge them just right off the bat? Just look at their lives and go, oh, God, that guy, he just doesn't. He's not much of a Christian. You don't know anything about him. You're just, it's all based on externals. I've told you guys a story years ago when uh, Hummers first came out and, and everybody, was, everybody was verbally appalled at him, going, what a, who would drive one of those? But inwardly, y'all lusted for one, right? You just, man, I'd just love to have one of those. But then outside, you'd say, how stupid. Who would waste that kind of gas on a vehicle? Who needs to drive a military vehicle? That's just, man, I'd love to have one of those. Well, I was teaching Bible study one morning, and um, there was one sitting in the parking lot. And everything, I mean, it was black, it was gorgeous, it was shiny, chrome all over. The, this thing was huge. And I wanted to take my key down the side of it. I mean, I literally, I walked, my God, I just want... And, and I, I just was so judgmental. And, and I even said something in the lesson about it. That who would drive a car like, you know what? Why would you drive a car like that? I don't even, can't remember what I said. And then I met the guy who owned it. And he was, the, he was a, an incredibly sweet, kind, gentle, strong believer. But I was judging him based on externals. See, that's what we do. But I'm not to think more highly of myself than you or not think you're better than I am because you look more spiritual than I am because we all came to the cross at the same place at the foot. We all brought our sins. We all brought our troubles. We all brought our muck. And what did he do? He saved us. So we're all even. We're not, not to think more highly. Then he goes into talking about gifts. And we're not going to talk about the gifts this morning. That's not pertinent to the topic, but it's the fact is we all have spiritual gifts. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. He talks about different gifts. He talks about prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, generosity, leading, mercy. We all have a gift. If you're in Christ, you have been given a gift. Do you use your gift? And if you use your gift, do you use it for the right reasons? Are you using it to glorify God and to lift up the body of Christ? Use it according to the grace given to us. God has graciously given you a gift. Are you using it to build up the body of Christ? Or are you a receiver? Are you an energy giver or taker? Do you suck life out of the church or do you give back to the church? And, and my contention is too many of us just come to the church to get from the church, but we never give back to the church. We don't use our gifts. We may not even know what our gift is. But what's interesting is that we all share the same faith, but we don't all share the same gift. Why? Because the body needs them all. There are leaders in this room 
And I don't mean that you lead in the public forum, that you lead your company and you're a leader. You may be a leader there, but not have the gift of leadership when it comes to the church. We need people who know how to lead within the context of the body of Christ. We need people who have mercy. Can you imagine what the church would be like without people like, without mercy? It, it'd be like a whole bunch of people like me. It wouldn't be a pretty picture. You know, we need people with mercy, compassion. We need people who can teach. We need people who can lead. We all have the same faith, but we don't have the same gifts. That's God's wisdom. So he says, if you're going to live within the body of Christ, if you're going to grow in Christ, figure out what your gift is and then begin to use it. And I'm a firm believer that the best way to find out your gift is just start serving. Just start giving your life away and God will reveal to you your gift. You'll find out you have the gift of mercy and you'll, you'll, you'll try to reject it. You'll go, no, 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 I don't want the gift of mercy. Well, you already have it because it shows up everywhere you show up. People will point it out to you. Man, you've got the gift of mercy. You have the gift of compassion. You have the gift of this. You have the gift of that. People will tell you what your gift is, but you've got to serve to discover it. You've got to find out what it is. All, all come by with the same faith. All come to the foot of the cross, but we are bestowed with gifts that we're to use within the body of Christ. Then in verse 9, he jumps into, let love be genuine. He starts talking about love that it's a no-brainer, guys, right, that we should love one another within the body of Christ. Isn't that, you know, Jesus said, love one another. We, we should love one another. But he says, let it be genuine. Let it be sincere. Let it be real. Don't let it be hypocritical. And then he's going to go into a whole bunch of things. He's going to abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. I'm telling you, 15, 16 years I've been doing this, Getting men to love one another is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. I don't even like loving you. It's hard, right? Because we're not real lovable. It's like trying to get a guy to hug you. You know, it's just, it's awkward and, you know, ugh. everything in us says don't do that. It's feminine. It's gross. And we just don't want to do it. But he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. No, we outdo one another in wanting honor. I, I deserve this. I, want, anybody going to pat me on the back today? Anybody say good things about me? But it's so hard for us to honor others. He says, don't be slothful in your zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in your prayers. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. See, what, what are all these things? They're those imperatives we talked about. They're commands. They're the things that you and I should be doing as we live the Christian life. Look at this list. Abhor what is evil. Man, I, I talk about this all the time because it's so true for all of us. What do you watch on TV? Do you love it or abhor it? Does it bother you or have you just become immune to it? and glazed over by it. You just, ah, it's not that bad. Do you abhor evil? Do you love what is good? Are you constant in prayer? That doesn't mean you pray constantly. It just means that you're always ready and willing to take anything and everything to God in prayer. Every decision, every situation. When it comes up, you pray. If somebody comes to you and says, man, I'm really struggling. Hey, can I pray for you right now? Now they'll, they'll start to sweat They'll start to go, here? Yeah. Can we just sit down over here and let me pray for you? 
Be constant in prayer. See, these are specific things that you and I can do as we live this Christian life that we're commanded to do. Not to win favor with God, but because we belong to God and we have received the mercies of God. He goes on in the next verses. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be compassionate for those around you. Live in harmony with one another. Man, think about the church. If the church would learn to live in harmony, but we can't seem to do it. We're always fighting either within the local church or local churches fighting with one another or denominations fighting with each other. Is it no wonder that the the world is not attracted to the church because the church can't seem to love itself? So he says, love one another, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Live peaceably with all. All of these are hard, right? Now, they may not be hard right now, but given enough time, you'll be put into a context within this body of Christ where some of these are going to be really difficult. Somebody's going to screw you, who you go to church with. Somebody's going to hurt you, say things about you, gossip. You may share something in a small group that you say, man, keep this in this room, and then it gets out, and you're going to be chapped. And you're going to have to learn to love them, forgive them, live peaceably with them, rectify the problem. See, that's what it means to grow up in your godliness. Never avenge yourself, he says. But isn't that what we want to do? I deserve to get even, and they deserve to get their head handed to them. They deserve to get exposed. They're wrong. I need to do this. But see, we're called to live differently. We're we're to, and every time you do these things, it's a form of worship. Think about that. Every time you do these things, it's worship to God. It is a sacrifice to God, and it pleases God. It may not please anybody around you, and nobody even recognizes it or appreciates it, but he does. And that's why we do it, to bring glory and honor to him. He loved, I love this in verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Are you absolutely nuts, Paul? What do I get out of that? He gets blessed, I get screwed again. Exactly. So do it. Pray for him, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals in his head. I love that part, right? (laughs) I can just even picture that in my mind, what that looks like. Oh, singe him, burn him. Now, that's talking about guilt. As you love him when he doesn't deserve love, God will do a number on him. Burning coals is a picture of judgment of God. It's, it's conviction that God... And you may not see it immediately. You, you may not sit there and see him cringe and you get to go, I'm going to love you and you're going to hurt. No, that's not. Love him because you've been loved. Forgive him because you've been forgiven. Leave the rest up to God. So don't be over, overcome by evil. As we live in this world, what's our biggest problem? That one, to be overcome by evil because we're surrounded by evil. We have a sin nature that lives within us. We have an enemy who hates us. We have a world who despises us. And so we can easily become overcome with evil. But how do you fight that? By overcoming evil with good. Responding in a Christ-like way. Loving as Christ loved. Doing the things that we've been called to do even when they don't feel normal, natural, or even enjoyable. Just do them because you've been called to and do it to bring glory and honor to God. That is worship. 
So you can show up in that sanctuary over there, whatever sanctuary you go to on Sundays, you can show up, you can sing the hymns, you can sing the songs, you can, you can feel all kinds of enthusiasm and kind of warm fuzzies inside and go, man, I just worshiped and be hating somebody sitting three rows over or be lusting at somebody in the choir or the orchestra or the worship team or let me tell you something, you're not worshiping. That's not worship. Worship shows up in everyday life as you live out your life the way God has called you to. So the greatest expression of your love for God is your selfless love for others. I've told you guys this before. I can't love God. I can't put my arms around God. I can't hug God. I, I can't even see God. But you know what? When I love you, I'm loving God. It's like when my kids were young and my kids would get along and my kids would love one another, play with one another without fighting. I felt love. That meant the world to me to see my kids, instead of fighting, sharing, loving, caring for one another, helping one another. I felt love. And God's the same way. You want to love me, he says, love one another. And that is worship to him because he's called us to do that. Love one another. So again, worship gets fleshed out for us. What does it look like? Living the Christian life, growing in Christ-likeness is a form of worship. Now he's going to talk about law. He's going to specifically talk about the Mosaic law, but in verse, chapter 13, verse 1, he's going to start talking about authority. And I can't think of a more timely topic than this one right now as we're going through this so-called election process. Uh, had dinner with, with some couples last night. It's a prayer group you meet every month. And over dinner, the guys were all sitting there talking. And we, guess what we talked about? The election. And every time we talk about the election, anytime I talk about anybody with the election, I just get knots in my spine over what we have to choose from, right? And, and yet he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Oh, Really? Lord, have you seen the governing authorities? <laughs> have you seen what we got to choose from? Is, it, is there not like a caveat in this? Is there a but or depending upon or only if? No, there's not. Be subject. He goes on, there's no authority except from God. They, have, they who exist are, have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Now, I don't know who's going to win, guys but I'm not real happy with any of them. And whoever gets in the White House, whoever it is, I have to look at that and go, whoever resists them, hates them, talks bad about them, is resisting God because he's put them there. I'm a firm believer, and I, I tell people this all the time. I said it to my wife the other day and she got depressed. I said, God may very well give us the president we deserve. He did it to Israel. He gave him Saul. And I'm going to have to, whoever that person is, I'm going to have to sit there and go, God put him there for a reason. To teach us something, to punish us. I don't know what it's going to be, but this is so timely because we live in a day and an age when the, the authorities over us aren't always worthy of our respect, worthy of our honor, worthy of our submission. But he has, he has appointed them. And those who resist will incur judgment. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. 
See, what he's saying is, is that God has instituted this thing called government. We didn't come up with it. God came up with it. Are there bad governments? Yes. Are there times when we might need to resist our government? I think so based on what they may call us to do. If they call on you to, to um, denounce God, to walk away from your faith, as is happening in many countries around the world, you will have to stand up to your government. You will have to protest your government and suffer the consequences. Go to jail, be in prison, possibly die. But we have to remember that God has put this in the world for a reason. The government exists for a reason. The government exists to hopefully punish bad conduct and reward good conduct. Does it always do that? Well, no. But we have to remember that God put it there. So we have to live under the law of the land. We have to obey the law of the land. We have to be good citizens, basically, is what he's talking about. Because the government is God's servant. Isn't it amazing how many times in the Old Testament that God used Nebuchadnezzar, God used uh, all these kings of pagan nations to accomplish his will for the people of God? To pay for them to go back to the land, to build the temple, to build the walls, to build... God is in control, and we got to keep going back to he is sovereign, he's in control. Whatever happens over the next year, whoever ends up in the White House, God is in control. Don't panic, don't fret, don't move to Canada. There is no better place, don't move to Australia. God's in control. We just have to keep remembering that the government exists for a reason. He is the servant of God. So therefore, one must be in subjection now, if the government commands you to do something that against the will of God, you will have to make the choice, and hopefully your choice will be to stand for God. I've always had a fear in my heart as I read stories about martyrs, what would I do if? What would I do if suddenly they broke into here and they said, okay, you're all, if you don't renounce Christ, you're all going to prison. Or if you don't renounce Christ, you're going to die. I've always thought, what would I do? And I really do believe, as, as fearful as I am and as mamby-pamby as I can be, I think God would give me the strength to say, you know what? I'm standing for Christ. And if that's what I have to do, that's what I have to do. But see, I've got to, in the meantime, I've got to subject myself to sometimes what is not something I want to subject myself to, knowing that God has put it there for a reason. So he says, pay taxes. Hopefully you pay your taxes. Hopefully you pay your taxes ethically. And you do it rightly. And you don't take advantage of loopholes. And you don't try to keep as much as you can. Are taxes unfair at times and exorbitant at times? Yes. But in Jesus' day, they were far worse than they are now. Because they had temple taxes. They had Roman taxes. They had all kinds of taxes. They could pay anywhere from 50 to 60 to 70% of their income in taxes. And Jesus said, pay your taxes. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. He didn't resist the tax plan of the Romans. He just said, be obedient. Why? Because we represent God on this earth. We are his children, and really we shouldn't worry about things because our stuff is in heaven. Our hope is in heaven. And again, he says, they are the authorities. They're ministers of God. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes. Pay your taxes. See, our holiness, our call to holiness is not a call to lawlessness. 
Well, I'm a Christian, I don't have to pay taxes. I'm a Christian, I live for God, and I don't live for the government. And there are so many radical splinter groups out there who call themselves Christian, who are anti-government, anti-this, anti-that. That is not how we've been called to live. We have been called to be radical, but not radical in that way. Radical in such a way that we make a difference in the way we live, in the context in which God has put us. So we're to live rightly and righteously on this earth as believers. That's our call. That's who we're here to be as we grow in Christ's likeness. So he says, don't owe anything to anyone except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. When you love one another, when you love those around you, even when you love the person in the White House who you can't stand, and everything about them, everything that they represent, you can't stand. But you know what? I'm going to love them, and I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to lift them up every day. Owe no one anything. Don't be in debt to anybody except to love them. And he says, all of this can be summed up in one thing, and that is to love one another. Isn't that what Jesus said? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments are the summation of all the law. Don't covet. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Just love one another. See, it's really hard to cheat somebody if you love them. It's really hard to lie to somebody if you love them. It's really hard to take advantage and lust after somebody if you love them. Love is the answer. Love is the key. And it's all summed up in that. Love is the law in all its fullness. If you want to keep the law, love. If you have the love that he has called us to have for one another, you will not lie to one another. You will not cheat one another. You will not lust after your friend's wife if you love him, if you care for him, and if you love her like a sister in Christ. See, love is the key. Love for others needs to bind everything that we do. You know, one of the, the founding verses of this ministry was 1 Corinthians 16, 13, which says, you know, act like men, be strong. And then it says, and let everything you do be done in love. See, I've got to love. I've got to learn how to love. I've got to learn how to love you. And love needs to permeate every aspect of my life as I live in this planet. Why? Because that brings glory and honor to God. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He's going to give us again some things to do. He's going to tell us to walk properly in the daytime. He's going to tell us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ every day of your life. That's what you need to do. And it needs to be consistent. You can't, you can't do this part-time. You can't do it only part of the time and then the rest of the time live like you want to live. It's got to be who you are and it's got to permeate every area of your life. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. You got to put this thing to death every day. That's what we've been called to. Why? Because we've been called to live holy lives in an unholy environment. And so this idea of your salvation, live out your salvation, grow up in your salvation. I am to live with my eyes set on. My salvation is not complete until when I get glorified. That's the goal. That's the object. We've talked about this for three weeks now. We are to live in light of our future salvation. And our current conduct is to reflect my future calling. I'm going to live like who I am. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm a son of God. I have a place reserved for me in heaven. I'm an ambassador while I'm here. I don't belong here, but you know what? He's put me here and I'm going to live for his glory and for his kingdom and obey his law in this land and affect everybody around me. What would it look like if we really began to live that way? We're to live like kingdom citizens now. Which kingdom? That kingdom. Not this one. But that doesn't mean you live rebelliously. 
You know, if you're an ambassador from the United States and you go to Germany, you keep the laws of Germany unless they cause you to disobey the laws of your land. That's how we're to live here. We're to live honestly, soberly, righteously. Paul tells the Ephesians, God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. We are already technically seated with Christ in heaven even now. It's as if it's so done, it's so sure that it's as if we're already there. Live like it. Live like who you are while you live here. Reflect his nature. Reflect his will. So lastly, the last uh, chapter, he says, honor God. And in this chapter, he talks about how do we react with one another when we don't agree? See, there's gray areas in this thing called Christianity. There are those in the room who may think drinking is wrong because you were raised Southern Baptist like I was. All drinking is wrong. Don't ever let it touch your lips. There are others in the room who think drinking is perfectly fine. The Bible doesn't say you can't drink. It says you shouldn't get drunk. And those are gray areas that we fight over and we debate over. And he says, you know what? Whatever you do, whatever you decide is right for you, and you have peace with God and your conscience, it's okay for you to do, do it in honor of the Lord. If there's somebody in your small group who doesn't drink, and they get offended every time you serve alcohol at your small group, and, and it does happen in this church, and they call their pastor, their life stage pastor, and go, I can't believe in my small group they serve alcohol, I'm so offended. And you know they don't drink, and you know they're offended, and you keep serving alcohol. Paul would say, you know what, why don't you just give up your right to alcohol and quit offending your brother and sister in Christ? Just give it up. It's not worth it. Yeah, but I have a right. It's not wrong. No, give up your rights. Love that brother and sister in Christ. They are convicted in their heart that it's wrong. Don't keep flaunting it in front of them. That's what this chapter is really all about. Do it for the honor of God. Would it be more honorable for you to just say, you know what, I'm not going to serve it. We don't need it. It's okay. Yes, I have the right, but I'm going to die to my right, and I'm going to love my brother and sister in Christ. I'm going to honor them. Over and over again, honor the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. He gives thanks to God. He abstains in honor of the Lord. He gives thanks to God. Do everything you do to honor God. That ought to be the, the litmus test for everything we do in our life. We live to the Lord and we die to the Lord. Everything you do, do it as unto God. It makes it so much easier. Why? Because we are the Lord's. We belong to him. So quit worrying about your rights. Die to your rights. Give up your rights. Just say, you know what? It doesn't matter. I don't need to do this. Is this hard? It's incredibly hard. Because my rights are really, really strong, and I love my rights, and I stand for my rights. But you know what? Jesus Christ gave up his rights. He died so that I could live. So whatever you do, Paul tells the Colossians, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. He tells the Ephesians, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. He's talking to slaves. Obey as you would Christ. He doesn't say, you know what, you should be free. You shouldn't even be a bondservant. Slavery is wrong. He doesn't speak out against slavery. He says, if you are a slave, do your job as unto Christ. So whatever you do in this context, in the worldly context, secular context, do it as unto the Lord.
Well, I'm going to skip on to the, your discussion question because I want to leave you guys enough time to, to talk about this. So what do, what do we do with this, guys? Basically, what have we been talking about? Living your life in this earth, living out Christ-likeness, growing in Christ-likeness, living a practical faith. So here's your question. What would Paul seem to believe that saving faith is practical faith? What, what does that mean to you? What, what is saving faith that is practical faith? How could you have a saving faith that is not practical? Why should your faith in God be practical in everyday life? What difference does it make? How our faith, discuss how our faith can fail to show up in everyday life and what we should do about it. See, I can say I'm a believer. I can say I love Jesus Christ. I can say I have faith. I can say all these things, but if I don't live it out in everyday life where rubber meets the road, what difference does it make? So let me pray for you, and I want you to wrestle with this, and I want you to figure out how do you make your faith practical every day of your life, no matter what you're doing. Father, I thank you for these guys. I pray that you would speak to them, through them, encourage them, challenge them. Uh, Lord, let them know that their faith makes a difference. It should permeate every area of their life. Is it hard? It's impossible. But with you, all things are possible. With Christ, with the Holy Spirit, with the Word of God, and with the fellowship of other believers, we can pull this off. We're expected to pull this off in your strength, to your glory. So, Father, challenge us, strengthen us, grow us, that we might live like your men in this world until the day you come back or you take us. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have at it.